This morning we are meeting with Ken Green, and Ken, what exactly is your title here at the Fraser Institute? Well, I have several titles. Um, one title is Chief Scientist, uh, and another is Director of the Risk and Environment Center here at Fraser Institute. Now, what exactly is the Risk and Environment Center? Well, we, uh, we do research looking at the management of risks to human health and also risks to the environment. So uh, the question of what we do about air pollution, for example, is something we would study. The question of what we do about uh, global warming is something we study. Uh, the question of how we manage chemicals in the environment is something we study. What do you think uh, are, and, and this is an issue that comes up in, in, in when we talk about the environment, and that is, what are the really important issues? What are the priorities? So if I were to ask you, what are the really meaningful or significant or potentially uh, dangerous issues? Where should we be focusing our energies? And conversely, which are the ones that are not so important that are distracting us from the important environmental issues? You know, that's where, I, that's where I'm torn between the two words risk and environment, because if you look only at risk uh, to people's health, if you, if you have a human-centered view, um, you then have to step back and say, what are the biggest risks to human health? And are they environmental risks like air pollution or global warming? Or are they risks from disease, starvation, um, and uh, lack of sanitation and so forth, which, which kill about 10 million children? Uh, a year, so um, it's, uh, it's it's difficult that way. But when you look only at the environment, you still can rank the problems. And so we do have some cities where the air pollution levels are high enough that it aggravates people's uh, respiratory disease, uh, and particularly in children. We do have uh, water pollution problems. We have areas where uh, wastes build up and destroy, especially surface water, rivers and uh, streams because the way cities are designed, it, it concentrates all of the pollutants and runs them into the water at a high volume, high rate of speed, and causes destruction. Um, we have uh, coastal water pollution problems as well, where rain carries all the runoff from the cities uh, and uh, into the storm drains and so forth out to the, to the ocean and contaminates the ocean uh, with bacteria and various kinds of chemicals that affect the, the fish and so forth. Um, those, I'd say, are where we really would want to concentrate. Uh, areas where we don't want to look, we, we don't need to be investing as much resource in, uh, in my opinion, is uh, concern over extremely low dose, low exposures to chemicals. Uh, and I think we are far too fixated on global warming because of various political reasons uh, compared to the importance of the other problems. And uh, you made the point uh, that if we look at it from uh, the point of view of risk to human health, and I'm sure that is really the only sensible way to approach the environment because if you approach the environment from the point of view of what is good for a microbe or what is good for some other organism that may not be a good thing for humans and I got the sense that you were saying that some of the economic issues uh, are, have a bigger impact on human health if we look at it globally than some of the fashionable environmental issues. Well I think that's definitely true. I, um one does have to, you do have to acknowledge though that that even though human-centered environmentalism or a human-centric worldview is one we hold, may hold, uh, increasingly there are people um, who are not human-centered, including groups like David Suzuki, where what they they his foundation where they hold this idea that that life other life forms, including all the way down to to insects and microbes, 
have uh, an intrinsic value that is outside of humanity, and that um, our value to, in ourselves and to our children is not, to them, is, is not more important than the value they place on an insect species or uh, a, a microbial species, for that matter. They haven't gotten into microbe rights yet, but, but it's only a matter of time. Um, uh, but you're absolutely right. I mean, the, one of the things that, that's interesting about the environmental movement is that they were the ones who first reminded everybody that everything was connected. That's a mantra of the environmental movement, is that everything is connected. We forget about our connectedness to the, to the, the world. In fact, uh, David Suzuki has a column out uh, today that talks about this, the fact that we've uh, lost our connectedness. Well, the problem is, is, is he then goes on to, to slam economics, which is really it's, just, it's a study of human connectedness in the way of our actions. Of, of actions. Uh, the way I describe it to classes is that if, if the currency of a forest is sugar, and that the sunlight is turned into sugar which moves around through the forest in different forms and is eaten and transformed into different things, the currency of the human ecosystem, of course, is money. And to ignore economics is really to do exactly what environmentalists always condemn, to fraction your worldview into little compartments and treat them as separate when they're not. I mean, uh, it's always seemed to me that you could argue from the perspective of all other forms of life uh, the worst economic problem is the explosion of the population of humans because the humans uh, are taking space away or are changing the ecosystem possibly to the advantage of some other species but very certainly to the disadvantage of others so that the fact that the human species is doing well because the population is increasing, is an environmental problem for others, for other species. Right. Well, but of course, this all species do that to each other. I mean, that the, the when you have an explosion of cows, right? If you have a growth in your cattle population, it's going to be at, at the expense of other animals that are pushed out of that particular living space. Mm -hmm. If you have a, an explosion of your, if you have an explosion of your bear population. It's going to be at the expense of the prey animals that otherwise were going unhunted, and at the expense of other predators who are going to face, you know, more competition with food. So, on. so uh, I mean, that makes us no different in any in any regard from the animals. Uh, if anything, however, I mean, if you think about the, the sheer number of, of things, uh, humans that even at our, at our six billion, uh, we are we don't even compare to some of the insect species or, or uh, you know bird species, bird population. Uh, so it's, it's not as if we're taking over the entire planet through our, our mass, uh, nor our footprint for that matter. I mean, uh, the developed in the North America, uh, the development level is uh, only about 5% or less is land that's developed, including farmed. The rest is parks and wilderness areas. So uh, we, we have a pretty small presence when, when it really comes down to it. However, when you say overfly uh, British Columbia, it's hard not to see the different areas where uh, you know the forest has been harvested and uh, of course very often uh, if you're not at ground level you can't see that these different patches are different there's different levels of tree cover on them uh, from uh, 30,000 feet you can you can just see this has been harvested this hasn't so do you do you include the sort of economic forest as untouched or well I think you have to find a balance I mean the, the every you, you want you want to protect your ecosystem and it, it is undeniable that, that human populations receive what are called ecosystem services from forests. I mean, they do, after all, turn carbon dioxide into oxygen. Um, 
groups. They do offer uh, habitat for wildlife. They do tend to slow water when, when it rains. If you have a forested hillside, it's going to change the way the water runs down. It's going to trap more of it, hold it for groundwater, protect the, the land below, and so forth. Um, you have to protect those things because there's, there's services that humans need. On the other hand, humans also need to use the resources that are available to them in order to raise the quality of life for not only uh, Canadians, but everyone around the world. Uh, and the more we have trade in which we use resources, the more the, light, the, the lives of people around the world uh, improve. So you, you have to find a balance. Uh, do you think that the uh, problems with the, uh, with the environment are larger in the developed world or in the underdeveloped world? Well, I think they're clearly they're clearly larger in the developing or the underdeveloped world. Uh, in that the developed world uh, has has already started to turn the corner on environmental. In fact, there's long path turning the corner on uh, fixing the environmental harms that that were the result of their development. Uh, the developing countries. Um, because they have such huge populations and when they go through their, their industrialization and development curves, um, they're going to rack up much bigger outputs of pollutants than, than the developed world did because it's so much smaller what it didn't. Now how about though the argument that, and this applies particularly to uh, global warming, that the developed world is hogging the resources uh, producing a disproportionate amount of the uh, CO2 and so therefore the bad player, the bad actor in this uh, is, the, uh, is the developed world. Well, there's, there, we have to unpack that in several ways. First, it's not clear that CO2 has caused uh, or is likely to cause a significant extent of warming. There are many possible suspects in the uh, investigation as to why it got a little warmer in the last, it seems to have gotten warmer in the last 50 years. And I say seems advisedly because we're not even sure that it's gotten warmer because of the difficulty of figuring out what the heck an average Earth's average temperature means. But um, even setting that aside, the question of are we hogging the resources? Well, uh, we may be hogging resources in that we use more than our population, you know, more on a per capita basis than other countries. But do we invent more drugs per capita than other countries that they benefit from? Do we invent more technologies per capita than other countries that they benefit from? Have we developed more uh, economic systems per capita than other other countries, and do they benefit from those things? Um, there's nothing inherently wrong with take using more of one particular resource than you than everybody else does, if you're producing something of value for them to use. And how uh, touching again on the developing world, uh, China or India. Uh, is it possible that they could develop uh, the same kind of industrial capability as the developed world without uh, causing tremendous increase in, in uh, pollution? That's going to be that's going to be very difficult for them. It's going to be very difficult because um, first of all, they have such huge populations that have such uh, dramatic needs. Uh, they have you know they yet to get. Uh, adequate sanitation and plumbing and access to clean water for vast swaths of their population. It's going to be very hard. Uh, they also don't have a lot of economic, they haven't had a lot of economic freedom and consequently their economies are not the strongest performers. That means they don't have the luxury of taking a more expensive technology if they can get away with a cheaper one. 
And so, even though some people say that theorizing, what we'll do is we'll take the technology from the developed world, our clean gas-fired power plants, and we'll give them to China and to India. Rather than have them burn their local coal, we'll somehow give them the gas plant and pipe the gas in for them to use. Um, I just don't see that happening given the given their economic nature, their economic status. Plus, they're they're going to be with this technological imperialism, which it would be because they wouldn't have the infrastructure to to maintain those plants or service them, and they'd have to, uh, you know, everybody would have to be trained by the the, the developed countries that build the plants and everything. And, uh, it's going to be very difficult for them to, to not go through a phase of intense polluting mm -hmm. if they're going to give their populations quality of life. Right. Which is not unlike what we had in the, in the developed world. I mean, the, the no. our cities were quite a bit more unhealthy a hundred years ago than they are today. Absolutely. There's a, there's a standard, uh, set standard uh, curve that, that societies pass through as they develop. When they're first meeting their basic needs, they place food and housing and education and uh, physical safety above um, environmental cleanliness, and they go through a polluting phase. They reach a certain level of, of income and quality of life, uh, and then they can turn around and say, you know, now I like this, but I'd also like it in a, in a clean environment, with clean air and clean water, and, and, and protected forests and lots of parks. Uh, but first, they have to get the basic necessities of life down before they can have the luxury of affording any of those things. Um, and. The, the challenge is going to be that, that uh, when developed, the developed world went through this curve, there really weren't all that many of them. I mean, you know, when when uh, United States went through it uh, in the in the 1800s, there were there were a hundred uh, million, perhaps. Um, when you're when you're looking at uh, China now, a billion people, um, it's it's going to be a, it's just going to be a bigger curve. There's, mm -hmm. there's virtually no way around it. Plus, their land has already been much more exhausted by thousands of years of, of, of civilization. Than yes, that's right. Yeah. They didn't have the resources to begin with. Now, the question on the environmental movement. I think there's a lot of hype, a lot of ideology. There's a lot of sort of anti-establishment, uh, you know, almost Marxist type of, of, of motivation that goes on there. But do you also think that they have been useful in stimulating people to think... Uh, perhaps a little proactively about things they can do to mitigate sort of the impact of, of economic development on the environment. Has it been a positive influence or a negative influence? I think it's been a, I think it's been a, a positive influence, but regrettably it's been a positive influence through a negative approach. Uh, it's, it's, uh, good things can happen even from, from bad effects. So, the fact that they've taken an adversarial approach and they sue rather than they've, they've decided that industry and the economy are the enemy uh, is the regrettable part. The fact that they pointed to the importance of environmental systems, that was very good. And the fact that they pointed out that environmental problems were happening which were not visible. For instance, lots of leaking underground storage tanks, polluting waterways, killing fish, etc. And think chemicals building up in some areas, industrial chemicals building up to the level that people were dying uh, in significant numbers. Those are all valuable uh, valuable things. Now, I, I, I think many of them would have been done without ever having the name of an environmentalist movement or having the ideology sort of of, of environmentalism, which is, as you pointed out, pretty much Marxist um, in, in its ideology and, and in some cases outright uh, anti-human. Uh, you have you have some environmental movements where the the, the people that have ca characterized humans as being a cancer, 
uh, on Earth and that they, f they think the best thing for the environment would be a virus that killed us, killed all the humans off until there were only a few thousand left. So that Maybe those particular environmentalists should lead the charge in <laughs> that regard. Yes, lead well, by I, example yes, early. Right. I think, I think that, I'm sure they've heard that, given that invitation before, but uh, um, yeah, so I think they did some good in pointing to some early, uh, early on, certainly in the, in the 70s when you had Lake Erie, which was heavily polluted, uh, and you had, for instance, there was there was one river that actually caught fire because it had right. so much oil on the water, uh, and you had some substantial bird population die-offs, and nobody's quite sure why, uh, but they provided a, a valuable service then. I, I think um, less and less so as time goes on. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things you touched on earlier, and I've read some Fraser Institute material that spoke about it, was that a lot of the sort of militant environmentalists sort of the same type of people uh, that uh, they're, they're the anti-globalization type of people uh, harping on the negatives of capitalism and so on that in fact only in the countries where capitalism has increased the standard level of income and the standard of living uh, are those countries able to then change their environmental policy yeah, I break it into two groups I, I um, I think of them as sort of old school environmentalists, which is, they, they adopted this idea from the 60s. It's sort of all the whole revolutionary ideology that was involved in the Central American disputes and, uh, you know, protesting the Vietnam War and so forth, uh, which is essentially that um, capitalism is bad, it's inherently destructive to the environment and humanity, human nature, and it needs to be wiped out. Uh, and they so so they hold this as a, a fundamental tenet that if you give people economic freedom, the first thing they'll do with it is something destructive, and any kind of freedom for that matter. Actually, they don't really like much of anything in the way of freedom that empowers you to do something because they they view what you're going to do with it as being bad. Because maybe you don't want to go hiking. Well, if you're going hiking, then you're probably putting a trail through a forest somewhere, and they don't want that. Maybe you want to go swimming. Well, if you're you know going in the ocean, well, you're going to carry your sunscreen with you, and you're going to get chemicals in the water, so they don't want that. So they have this view, sort of, in, uh, that, that economic freedom is, is evil. And yet, uh, as you pointed out, if you look around the world and you ask where it is that you can you can maintain a healthy uh, environment, where you can get children uh, access to clean water and good medical care and have them grow up and, uh, and have a uh, good expectance, good chance of them growing up, uh, it's precisely the countries where they they have more economic freedom. Uh, and it's 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 in proportion. It's just the, the higher you get on the economic freedom scales, the better your uh, your indicators are for children's health and environmental quality and access to, to medical care and good food and all that. Perhaps a final question: uh, What are the uh, what are the if you were to rank the top three risks to human health in Vancouver and British Columbia, Lower Mainland? What would they be? Well, the top three risks to human health in, in Vancouver, Lower Mainland, uh, uh, are probably going to be heart disease, uh, cancer, uh, and then um, accidents. How many of those would be environment, or if you were say environment-related risks to human health? None. Uh, I think uh, there's a behavioral link to cancer um, in that people's lifestyle choices can right. increase their risk. There are lifestyle choices with regard to heart disease, um, and uh, accidents, of course, uh, are unrelated to environmental uh, environmental quality. So, 
I'd say the, the, the major things that if in your daily life, the daily life of a Vancouverian, what's going to hurt you or your children, right? It's going to be disease, accidents, other other people perhaps crying, although it's not a huge problem here. Mm -hmm. um, or your own behavior. It's not likely to be chemicals. It's not likely to be the ozone layer. It's not likely to be air pollution. It's not likely to be water pollution. And that's going forward 20, 30, 40, 50 years, I mean, to the, to the extent that we can predict. Actually, it's gonna, it, it'll become more, uh, it'll beca that, that uh, disparity will become bigger because we're, we're improving. Our air quality is, is improving all the time. Uh, our water quality is, is improving. We're taking better care of that. We have mm -hmm. less, we have less uh, enduring chemicals. And so mm -hmm. the, the chemical exposures you're getting are, are declining over mm -hmm. time. Uh, so the environmental issues in the in Canada developed world really uh, we're well past well over the hump uh, and headed on the the slope to having as pristine an environment as it's uh, reasonably possible to achieve. Well, let me ask one more question because this interests me is the whole fish issue. We hear about the cod running out, we're running out of cod. Uh, there's this whole argument about uh, fish farms, which I don't understand, even though certain <laughs> local commentators get totally berserk. Well, they say that we're hey, running out of salmon, but also that fish farms is a bad idea. On the other hand, if you look at a place like China, if they didn't have fish farms, they wouldn't be able to eat fish with their population. What's the whole fish? Maybe just delve a little bit into the fish scenario. That's, that's a tricky one because there's lots of different scenarios here. One right. question is, in the deep oceans, um, has overfishing led to the depletion of large fish. Right. Uh, like um, tuna, like swordfish, you know, big predatory fish. Um, the evidence there, although of course there's only a few studies, but the evidence there is that uh, there is an overfishing problem because nobody owns the fish. Right. And so uh, there's absolutely no incentive to, to save fish or leave them in the ocean to pick them up next year if somebody else is just going to scoop them out of the water when your boat goes back to port, so you catch as many fish as you possibly can, all as long as you, for as long as time as you possibly can, and that does seem to have led to um, unsustainably high catches. And you include the cod in there, or your no, now the cod, the commercial fisheries offshore, like cod and things, they, they also seem to have had this problem, mm -hmm. yes, which is. Uh, because of, of the lack of, of property rights, uh, there's no incentive to leave fish in the water right. next year. Now, the problem, with the, the problem is that the state has come in, regulators come in, uh, and, and they, they, they correctly identify a problem, that you're, you're, getting, you're catching less and less fish because you're running out. Your biologists tell them you, you, your fish are getting smaller all the time because you're catching the big ones, and right. you're not letting them breed, and so you're running out of fish. Well, they, so they've identified the right problem, but they always then they pick they go to a regulatory approach first without thinking about the incentives why you have this problem. Instead, they say, well, we have too few fish, so we're going to limit the catch, and we can only catch these fish from this month to that month. Well, but then the market responds by having people build either bigger ships or the, they have more ships or they have better nets, uh, and they, then they say, well, we're going to shrink the season down and limit the number of boats. You can only have one boat, but then somebody comes, they build a very big boat, right? That's very effective. And because they, they, they fail to change the underlying incentive, which is that without a reason to steward the resource, it you you, you lose by leaving fish in the water. Right. So um, uh, that's a real problem. Um, so that, that's a genuine problem. We, we have a book coming out on this question which says, what do you do about these fisheries? Well, 
you find a way to assign what are called tradable credits. You figure out first and foremost, you have the biologists figure out what's the maximum number of fish you can take out of the water in a given year uh, without you know, knocking the population back so that it can maintain that level and even grow. You want it to grow back to, to where it was so you can have more fish. Then you take those credits and you allocate them to the existing fishing fleets uh, and every year you assess whether you have, how many credits you have and they then, they know how many credits they're going to get each year. So they have, a, they, they can catch the amount that's on their permit, then they stop, they can plan their operations, they have an incentive, they know there'll be more fish next year. And anybody who tries to poach is taking away fish from a legitimate credit holder, deferring holder, and so they have their own motivation to enforce it as well. That's been done around the world in various places and has worked very, very well on different kinds of, of fish and uh, as well as shellfish. Mm -hmm. Hey, this, the other question you ask is, well, what about fish farms? That's a, that's a different, that's sort of a different subject because um, they run into each other. The fish farm issue is one of um, concentration. Uh, there's an environmental saying which is the answer to pollution is dilution. There's a, um, uh, a saying in the environment that, that uh, dilution is the answer to pollution. Fish farms make it very hard to dilute things. What they do is they gather a large number of fish from small places in a waterway, right? Now, when you gather the, that many fish at high concentration, you get several things. One, you have to put a lot of fish food in the water, and the fish don't eat all of it, so it drifts down, um, and causes lays in a blanket on the bottom of the ocean, and when there's enough of it, it takes the air out, the air, the, the, or, the organisms eat it, and it becomes an air, anaerobic zone, and nothing can really live down there anymore. So you do have a big footprint underneath uh, another problem is you have to, um, when you have that many fish uh, close together, they serve as a, a very good population uh, for parasites and for diseases. I mean, it's like with humans. When you crowd humans together, right. they become susceptible to a lot of things that when they're spread out, they don't get. So lice, right? Right. Um, and in fact, sea lice is part of the problem. You have the fish farms where the sea lice uh, tend to they they, uh, they see a big target. They can reproduce very rapidly. Now they now they come from wild fish. They're, they're right. brought in right. from wild fish. So it's a wild fish that contaminates the fish farm in the first place. But then the fish farm can really amplify right. the problem. Then they have to do throw drugs in the right. They have to use antibiotics in order to to cure them, to clean them out. So um, it uh, it is it is challenging to not have that giant that that pollution. Uh, cause problem. Right. And then if the, if the diseases do amplify, then the local fish stocks, which may right. already have been hammered by overfishing, right. uh, are hammered yet again uh, by uh, an accidental you know, side blow from the fishery. So right. it is a challenge, but as you pointed out, you know, it's not one we can afford to write off or pick. Right. We have, the world's going to have about 8 billion people uh, in, in uh, 2050, I think, or 20, 2050 to 2100. And it's unreasonable. It's it's it's, um, it's irrational to think we're going to provide those people with all the protein they need um, without uh, by, and by wasting this kind of technology. Right. With, without using that kind of technology. Yeah. And if we don't use the fish farming, well, what, what kind of protein are they going to have? Because the other methods of raising protein also have a footprint. Right. There's nothing humans do actually that leaves no footprint. So right. you can. If you're going to run cattle, well, cows are not exactly environmentally benign. Right. Uh, if it's going to be pigs, the same thing. If it's going to be chickens, if poultry, etc., they're all um, 
chuckling. And humans are really not designed to uh, to thrive only on uh, vegetable protein. Right. And in fact, there are good studies that show that, that trying to, if the world was vegetarian, all, all the whole world was vegetarian, it'd be far worse off because there are very few places in the world where you can eat local vegetation and have a fully balanced diet. Mm. You have to bring things in, mm. and if you were to do it on a scale that's necessary globally to to do all the vitamin concentrates and everything else that, that leads to a quote healthy vegetarian lifestyle in the developed world, you cause immense environmental destruction because you have to transport vast bulks of, of food around the world, whereas protein, of course, is actually the most concentrated form of nutrition you can move around. So it's much more efficient to try to move that than it is to try to move 500 tons of soybeans. You know, I think that's a good place to stop because you have reintroduced the question of connectedness. And everything is connected, and I thank you very much.